Uh, all right. So I'm here with Chris from uh, Edge Surgical. Uh, very interesting device. I'm sure there's a huge problem in this in, in the orthopedic space that you you solve. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys have a device that measures um, uh, measures is a measuring device in the orthopedic space, correct? Yeah. So the basic premise is, is we uh, well, our basic premise as a company is we develop and manufacture. Uh, smart digital tools that enable surgeons to more accurately and safely place surgical screws. Uh, so one of the first devices that we have is essentially uh, what's called uh, in, in the industry a depth gauge. So that measures the depth of a bone screw hole and essentially tells you, hey, surgeon, you need a 10 millimeter screw or a 16 millimeter screw or a 20 millimeter screw. And it's important to note that the the length of the screw is extremely important to the overall efficacy of the procedure. We like to say colloquially, it's like Goldilocks porridge. It's got to be just right. It can't be too long or too short. So it's been used in the market to date in general orthopedics procedures and spine procedures has been around for almost hundred years. The, the patent first patent filed for the legacy devices in 1925. Every manufacturer has this uh, type of depth gauge in some form or fashion. Unfortunately, they're equally um, mired with the same hurdles of just being inaccurate. And also, because they're reusable devices, they are a haven of bioburden contamination, which causes uh, infection. What we've developed, uh, our first device, it's 510K clear on the market, is an orthopedic depth gauge that is 90% more accurate because it's got uh, digital technology. And it's single use, so there's no risk of bob or contamination that can lead to infection. I love that. So, uh, for for those you know, for for those in the audience that uh, don't understand when screws are used in the orthopedic space, can you explain um, when that that occurs? Um, I'm sure the investors that you really want to talk to uh, understand this completely, but just for those that don't, um, can you can you just go a little bit into that, just so we're clear? Absolutely. About 2.5 million procedures in the United States a year uh, for general orthopedic procedures use screws to essentially fixate the bone so it can heal. Most people are familiar with if you break your bone, you, you put on a cast. But a lot of procedures, like I mentioned, 2.5 million uh, in the United States, have to use some sort of internal fixation uh, plate, which will fixate the bone together and to make sure the plate is fixated to the bone, they have to essentially drill it and put screws in. And so, you know, if you get hit by a car or you fall skiing, fall off your bike, some of the more traumatic bone injuries are going to require uh, a plate implanted into the body that state for, for adults, that plate stays into the day you die. For pediatrics, you got to remove it and replace it because they're growing. But for the most part, Think of it as something that's in there to the day you die. It's an important part of the procedure and it's used to fixate the bone together, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so what was the normal way of, of identifying what screws need, need to be used? It, well, it's the, what's the legacy device is what's called a depth gauge. It's a metal yeah. reusable device that was invented in 1925. There's been little, <laughs> little or no. Yeah. It's an old, a very old device. Uh, every single manufacturer in the world has it. It is ubiquitous. And if you put up every manufacturer's depth gauge, you all look pretty much the same. Uh, so it's been around for a while, but it's not very accurate. It causes issue with selecting the wrong length of screw. For instance, you, if you use the legacy device and think of it as using kind of the old, uh, well, I'll get, I'll get to the analogy here in a moment, but the device isn't very accurate. You're using a very old analog technology. So the measurement would say, oh, I think that says 20 millimeters, but really it's 16. And so you, you pick a 20 millimeter screw out and now it really should have been 16 and now the screw is too long and it's protruding out of the adjacent tissue causing pain. If it's around a... Uh, delicate areas such as your wrist or your right. foot. There's tendons. So if you go too far, you can cause a tendon rupture, those sort of sure. things. Important to get the right length of screw. How, how, often, how often do those tender, uh, 
what, what, how, how often do those ruptures occur? And then also, how often do infections occur because of this primitive device that was, that was established in 1925? Sure. So you're getting about 20 to 25% of measurement error using the legacy tool. Sure. And by measurement error, I mean critical measurement error. So up to two to four millimeters, too long or too short. Mm-hmm. You could probably get away with one millimeter too long or too short, but critical measurement error, 20, 25% of the time using your standard, uh, the legacy device that's been out there for almost a hundred years. With regards to infection, there's about uh, five to 7% infection rate in orthopedic procedures. And a lot of that has to do with dirty surgical tools. Part of it is, is the legacy uh, depth gauge. That's Does been that out make there. surgeons less susceptible to like lawsuits because of the infection rate? Of course, of course, yeah. yeah. Okay. Any sort of malpra- any sort of issue, whether it's infection or too long or too short a screw that causes a tendon rupture, those sort of things. Yeah, I mean they're definitely susceptible to uh, uh, litigation at that point. Yeah, are there times in which? you know, because of these, th- this device, this um, ubiquitous device, as you say, right, that's everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. Are there times in which um, this can cause like the, the way in which it's, it, the surgeon goes about things can cause death in some cases? Have you seen instances where that's the case? Absolutely. I, I would say not for the general orthopedic procedures, such as uh, let's say distal radial or a wrist or a foot procedure, but our next generation solution for uh, the spine market uh, is a great example here because if you can imagine in, in the spine area, getting the right length of screw is even more um, important. Not only do you have important neurological structures uh, around the spine, but you also have on the, on the opposite side, very important vascular structures. So if you go too long and you breach the vertebrae or the pedicle on the other side, you can puncture an aorta. And that is, I wouldn't call it instant death, but it's, uh, it, it's a huge risk to the procedure. And there's definitely times where uh, getting the, the wrong length of screw, particularly too long in spine procedures could, could cause death. Yeah, definitely. Um, why do you think there hasn't been many advancements in this area? Since- That's a great question. Yeah, well, it's the vast majority uh, uh, of the invest- advancements in the orthopedic space over the past several decades has been with implants. Whether that is um, uh, plates or screws, but what hasn't been a whole lot of focus till very recently, till the past five years, is with regards to the the tools, the instruments that help surgeons put in those plates and yeah. screws. Yeah. And so you're going to see a lot of that, uh, whether that's with increased navigation, robots, or what we're doing, the focus on the instruments and tools have become a, has become a focus on the past, uh, you know, about five years. Hmm. Got it. Um, it's just so interesting that it, like the, the most uh, up-to-date device was developed in 1925 and, and yeah. it was made ubiquitous during that time, right? So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so what, what interested you about getting into this space particularly? And um, Sure, I should be very clear. It wasn't my idea. Uh, my background is more medical device development and regulatory quality aspects. I know, I know the FDA pathways very well. And the commercial aspect, right? Around, yep, commercializing devices from, from soup to nuts. I know that, I know that uh, pathway pretty well. Yeah, And uh, I came across this opportunity from a local, um, a prominent local uh, surgeon named Dr. John Kim. He's more focused these days on plastic surgery, but not too long ago, he was doing a lot of hand surgeries where he was using the legacy metal depth gauge, the reasonable depth gauge that's been ubiquitous and around for almost a uh, hundred years. He got so fed up with it, trying to get a right measurement. He, he literally threw the device across the room and said, there's got to be a better way to do this. And he kind of, he had the aha moment. Now, like a lot of surgeons, they have great ideas. They're in surgery, such great clinical expertise. But in terms of taking that idea and pushing it through the requisite product development processes, 
FDA regulatory processes, et cetera. That's just not their expertise. And that's kind of where I came in. He approached me through some networking. I was looking to start my own thing. He says, I have this great idea, but I just don't know what to do with it. And that, I took it over from there and the rest they say is history. That's awesome. So what, what are your plans in uh, commercializing? So you guys are post-revenue, right? Currently? Correct. We just, we did a very small alpha launch about a year ago, 150 paid clinical cases just to kind of test it out, the, test out the market, see what surgeons say, see how it, how they react. Oh, it. Yeah. it was a success for us. We got 80% higher price points than what we anticipated. We wow. showed superior screw placement, which we wanted to see. And overall, the surgeons really love the device. Uh, with that, they did. They have just have to time. see it. So much as all it comes down to just like see the device, yeah. try it out. You're going to be sold. <laughs> exactly. And the one of the big things we learned, uh, which was one of the the key things we wanted to do about an alpha launch, is tell us about the design elements. You're using it in surgery. What are things you like or dislike about the design, so we can tweak it. And so we got a lot of great feedback. One of them, as an example, is our, our alpha launch, uh, the design for our alpha launch, we had an LCD screen for the digital readout. They mentioned, hey, you know, it's great, but at certain angles, the OR light reflects off the lens and I can't see the LCD screen. Can you do something about that? So we actually swapped out LCD for OLED. And if you're familiar with OLED, it's kind of like the new TV technology out there. So it's far more luminous, far more clear, a huge improvement on that aspect. And that's just one example that we did to improve the design for our beta launch. And we're about to beta launch here any week now, which is basically our full market launch. We have a nice $3 million sales pipeline cultivated during alpha. And our beta beta launch is, is like I mentioned, awesome. uh, on the forefront. That's what I like to hear. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, great. So um, how, did you, how did you initially form that partnership with, your, your, your co-founder because, uh, well, yeah. you're not, you're not the founder, right? You're, you're the person that came in, you know, later and later in uh, the, the development of the device. Right. Um, well, you know, I'm, okay. I'm co-founder of Red surgical, but in terms of Dr. John Kim, who had the okay. idea for the device, he's not, he's not a co-founder. He's like, Hey, I have the idea. Go make it happen. <laughs> yeah. Take it off my, you know, he's got, you know, a good stake in the company, yeah. uh, you know, as is, but his role is non-operational. He's just like, I don't know what to do here. Just take it off my chest here, take it and make it a success. He's got a nice stick in the company as I, I recommended, but then I mentioned my co-founder in the room here, uh, Casey Hoos, who's a, who's a um, basically luminary uh, medical device orthopedic sales rep, 10 years with Medtronic wow. and with several other major orthopedic companies. He was president's club at uh medtronic which is the top one percent of sales but i approached him with this wow idea. you should wow. use that in your pitch at the conference by the way all right i'll write that down so i mean it, i have my team in, in in that presentation but at any rate when i approach him, i've known casey for years and i was just kicking the tires on this with dr kim i go i don't know if this is a good idea or not he was like this is awesome and he goes i want to be your co-founder so he I, so he's, he was my co-founder from day one, and he's the one who's cultivated all these, um, the 150 cases we did uh, as part of the alpha launch. We're in 24 approved accounts, and I mentioned a $3 million sales pipeline. I can't take credit for that. That's all Casey. He, I mean, that's his background. That's his, that's his capabilities, sales, and marketing, and so that's all him. So I do think um, my team is very strong, not just from myself, but also from um, wow. someone like Casey who compliments where, where I don't have experience. I've never sold the device in my life. That's where he comes in. I like it. I love it. Um, how did you initially meet him? Oh, I've known Casey for almost 20 years. Um, wow. Just through some mutual friends. And I knew he was in sales with Medtronic. He was at, uh, did his own distributorship. And so when I came across this opportunity from Dr. Kim, I said, you know, let me, let me dig in a little bit of the market. Let me take a look. And he was the first person I called. And like I said, 10 years in Medtronic, which is the largest medical device company in the world and the largest spine uh, um, company in the world. He immediately understands the market. And if you're aware, 
orthopedic and spine sales reps actually sit in the surgery mm. with the surgeon and actually assist. Casey himself has been in 6,000 surgeries with surgeons. Wow. They become very close. They're almost like a team. And for that matter, being in 6,000 surgery himself, surgeries himself, he understands what's going on in there and how things are deficient, how things are good, how things are bad, and totally understands the issue with a lot of instrumentation, which is why he was very much drawn to what, 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 I, was, what I was doing and why he became my co-founder. Yeah. Got it. What, what does the market look like in the surgical space? I know you mentioned you know, briefly what it looks like, but can you tell me like, in terms of dollar value what the market appears to be? Sure. So total between general orthopedic and spine, it's about a $1.5 billion market for what we're doing in instrument space in the United States. And obviously much larger uh, when you go uh, uh, overseas, OUS, but yeah, 1.5 billion in the United States for instruments. Wow. That's awesome. Um, Okay, great. And you've already received a seed round, right? Um, At some point. Correct. Yeah, we had a seed round. We've actually already had a we've had a Series A, and now we're in um, our Series B, or some would call it a Series A preferred round right mm-hmm. now. We're raising about four million dollars. We do have a convertible note open as we speak. Uh, for those who are perhaps not lead worthy but want to invest, and we have two term sheets to, for folks to lead on the table right now. We're just kind of negotiating through those things. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. So um, how excited are you about presenting at the conference? No, I'm excited. I, I, obviously, this is, as the president and CEO, this is my job. So I've done this a lot. We've raised, uh, to, to your answer before, uh, about $6.4 million to date, if I'm including our current convertible note. So, you know, it's primarily been me doing that. That's been my, one of my main roles, in addition to some of the quality regulatory stuff. So I've done these things. I've been to these types of conferences. I'm, I'm, cur- I'm candidly, I'm curious how this is going to be done virtually, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm open. You're not the first. You're not the I only person. You're not the only person. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but I'm excited. <laughs> There's a lot of behind-the-scenes things we're doing to to facilitate this. Um, we've already done one, so we know all the kinks that we have to work out. Um, mm-hmm. And then we have like five people managing everything. So, mm-hmm. great, great, uh, you know, common concern, I think. I think I'm getting a background noise, but, um, but, uh, um, no, I think it's, no, that's okay. I think we're good now. Um, but, uh, but great. So regarding, uh, commercialization, like what, what, where do you guys see yourself being in, uh, in the next year or so or two years? Sure. So we anticipate this year's is kind of an interesting year with regards to what's going on with COVID and, and whatnot, and just getting our beta launch going. Uh, this year's we're anticipating maybe a half million in sales, not a ton. But after that, as I mentioned, we have a three million dollar sales pipeline. So these are surgeons who are approved at a negotiated price, are ready to use. So it's really just a matter of providing them yeah. manufacturing. So focus right now is for our beta launch is getting that right, getting product out there. We have our first lot in the, in, in the sterilizer as we speak today. We're just waiting for that to get done sterilizing, degassing, moving forward and getting those into cases and away we go. Uh, so a lot of the money that we're raising to date will actually go towards inventory, which will generate sales almost immediately. And I think that's important for the investors that I want to approach here is a lot of them get it, a lot of them like it, but it's worth noting that their money is going to be going towards a good chunk of it is going to be going towards inventory, generating revenue almost immediately. And so it's an exciting time for us, I'd say. And so that's why one of the reasons why I'm excited for these types of conferences is because we generally do very well. Things are going well for us despite COVID and, and investors get it and gravitate towards those sort of things. So I'm definitely excited to see where it goes. I love it. I love it. Um, and uh, so I'm kind of curious as to, you know, because your experience is, you know, regarding uh, getting investments and doing pitches in front of uh, investors. By the way, we're going to have probably around 230 investors in attendance. Yeah, well, well, no, no, sorry. Excuse me. I'm, I need to correct myself. 
we have 230 registered so far. Um, so we're, we're trying to get to 500 registered. Um, great, great. And uh, we have like, we have Citibank coming, Citibank Ventures coming. Um, mm-hmm. We have micro, the, yeah, life science, the executive from the life science division of Microsoft coming, um, Transamerica and uh, W. Al Gore. If you're familiar with W. Al Gore. Oh, of course, yep. Yeah, trying to get Johnson & Johnson. Would love to get Google, but uh takes a lot of work. So. We, know, we know Johnson & Johnson, they're, especially their, um, the Pew Synthes division, which is one of the largest orthopedic companies in the world. Uh, so we definitely know J&J very well. Wow, okay. All right, you should invite them. But who do you need to know? I, I, maybe I can uh, make, make, a, make a call. Yeah, I mean, um, I'll let you know. Uh, but uh, yeah, thanks for considering that. I, I really appreciate that. Um, so, you know, what excites you uh, about your day job on a daily basis? Like, I want to talk about the investors in a second, but what excites you the most about your day job? Well, it's, I'll just say is something deep down. I've always kind of wanted to do my own thing, control my own destiny with regards to my career. And um, deep down, what really gets me excited is I know what we're doing adds a ton of value to the industries we're in orthopedic and spine. Not and by value, I just I'm not just meaning dollars and cents, but most specifically, surgeon or patient satisfaction, improving surgical outcomes that is going to improve patients patient satisfaction. Deep down, I I know what we're that's what we're doing. So any sort of challenge or bump or roadblock along the way, which they're everywhere in a startup environment. It doesn't get me down because I know deep down that's what we're doing is we're yeah. helping surgeons do get better patient, better surgical outcomes, which improves patient experience. That's what that's what keeps me going. Can you can you talk a little bit about the 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 road bumps and what you've had to overcome to get where you are today? Sure. Well, it's you know one of the things where um, I mean, where do I start? To be honest, you know, I always say you you have a vision. You know, you kind of start here and you think and you think it's a boom no it's not it's like this big zigzag yeah and you eventually get to point b but the point is is along the way you just get these unusual curveballs such as oh you know there's a um I'll, i'll give an example so covid comes around and we have several we were hit with COVID very early because several of our suppliers were in China. And as you are aware, uh, China got hit with it first and they were kind of dealing with it well before the United States was. So our printed circuit boards, which are coming from China, were like, nope, we're not, you're not get, we're putting a two and a half month delay on those printed wow. circuit boards. Wow. And we're like, well, wait, 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 we're, we want to launch here. Um, you can't do that. And they're like, well, there's no one at the plant to do anything. So tough luck. I mean, it was much more cordial than that, obviously, but <laughs> you get the point. So what do you do? You know, we had to find local suppliers in the United States who were, and this is, again, before COVID kind of hit us hard. And then we found local suppliers in the United States. And then guess what? United States gets hit with it. Then our local suppliers are like, well, we're, we kind of have to slow down here. And I'm like, you're kidding me. I just <laughs> got this excuse from my China supplier. But at that point, the Chinese supplier was starting to get over it and come back on board. So we kind of pivoted back to them. Yeah. And therefore, I mean, that, w- that was a, a probably a two and a half month delay just trying to do something like that. Jeez. Jeez. And that's just one of many kind of hurdles along the way, particularly now, particularly right now, our, our hurdles are supply chain related. Um, but things are starting to clear up, get better there. Any sort of supply chain issues we've had have been very temporary and, and we don't expect it to be long-term uh, going forward. But that's just, that's just an example. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's it definitely the startup space is, is so difficult. And you've had experience working with larger companies. So exactly. you know, what, what do you think the main difference is between like a larger company and, and uh, uh, just the startup you know, kind of culture? That's a good question. I would say large company, things are very process-based. You kind of have a procedure and a process in place to do things. If there's a problem, go to this procedure and follow ABC123. In the startup space, there's none of that. You're shooting from the hip. You're figuring stuff out on the fly. And you have 
very little time to think because mm-hmm. you got to make a decision to, yeah. to do something. Because then you lose money if you, if you don't make the right decision. Exactly. So yeah. it, it's, it's obviously more risky right. uh, in the startup space for that reason. So thinking on your feet and having to rely more on your instincts and your intuition than say a procedure or a process is kind of, is, is definitely the biggest thing I had to get used to going from big company process-based procedure-based world to, you know, startup world where I am now. Yeah. Was it kind of like a, was it a culture shock to go from when you initially, you know, change your focus to startups? Was it like, wow, this is like way different. Like what was oh, yeah. it shock your system where you're just like, man, well, yeah, I mean, well, I go from, uh, so right before I started at surgical, I was at uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers and their advisory practice and their, me- and their medical oh, yeah. price group. They're, they're coming too, PricewaterhouseCoopers. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. So point is, is I had a boss, I had uh, a structured way of going about things. And then now because I'm the president and CEO, I don't have a boss, technically speaking, but I, I am kind of beholden to my board and my investors. So it's a little different dynamic, but there's no, the structures in place of, of being around a team and hierarchical stuff like that. That's all gone here. Everyone has to wear multiple hats. There's no, Hey, I, I override you because I'm your boss. There's none of that right now, at least not on our stage. I know that I know that startups grow more hierarchy uh, and we're perhaps on the horizon to do that. But in the beginning, it's, it's really just being able to be comfortable with being uncomfortable is the way I'd say it. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's always interesting. Um, especially when I work with like bigger corporations, uh, when I have worked with them, it's, there's so much that's, you know, I, I think somebody that's used to the startup culture would get annoyed by the corporate culture and someone that, that's used to the corporate culture would get annoyed by the startup culture. Oh, I agree. Uh, <laughs> and I, and I, I got it. It took some getting used to, to be honest. Uh, but you, you kind of fall into your role and get used to it and get accustomed to what you need to do. Yeah. I've been at this for almost four years now in, the, in this role with Edge Surgical and I've, I've definitely grown as a professional. Uh, definitely yeah. grow my skill set doing this and um, I'm happy I'm happy doing this uh, no doubt yeah. so is your partner coming to the conference he could I mean he could be there I think I'm the only one registered but uh, uh, he can he could if you like yeah you should come. I, I didn't offer it up yeah you should come for sure but um, okay. oh. but uh, yeah so going back into like the corporate culture versus you know, startup culture. Um, it's really interesting. Uh, so kind of how, how far away are you from getting to the point where you can consider yourself like part of a, a cor- corporate culture? Like, do, do you need to get into like what, like regarding revenue, you know, where do you think you'll be in like two years, three years, four years, five years down the line? Um, and uh, you said you have $3 million in, in, in orders that are potentially going out. So, that's a $3 million a year. Am I correct in saying that? Correct. Okay. So $3 million a year, but you could do more than that. Right. Yeah. Um, so when do you start, when do you think you'll start developing a corporate culture? Cause I think that's a really important inflection point for every startup company mm-hmm. is like, mm-hmm. we're going to change into, and I feel like a lot of corporate, a lot of like startup companies, they lose a lot of their startup employees because the startup employees are so, you know, yeah. uh, used to a certain structure and, and, and culture. But yeah. when do you think you'll get to that point? Well, uh, let me put a little perspective here. So when I was at PwC, I believe it was the second largest private company in the world. And then the, the, big, uh, the other company I worked before, those Abbott Laboratories, which is one of the largest healthcare companies in the world. So my corporate experience is these massive companies. So... To answer that question, to think, okay, when are we going? I mean, it would be decades before we would ever evolve to what an Abbott or PwC what is today. Well, yeah. Right? Well, well, there's different levels, right? But like, yeah. I don't. And so I'm trying to say is I don't know what, at what time would we say, you know, we're, we have a corporate structure now. It, it's a really tough question. And if I was to just 
shoot from the hip and a- answer that, I would say, you know, when we have maybe 20 people hired and we have very set processes in what we do and no more thinking off, you know, uh, taking into a thinking and, and just making a decision from our gut. It's like, what's the process say? Let's go through this process, go through that process. So I'm really just making a guess that, you know, perhaps in the 20, 20 person range is when you have to start really standardizing your processes from HR to sales, um, to even executive level stuff. And if you start offering benefits, which we do here to, to, to the few uh, folks yeah. we have involved yeah. with us now, I'm just honestly making a guess at that point is, is when we would feel more corporate, so to speak. Got it. So yeah. you, you focus mainly on, on talking with investors. Um, you know, from the company side, I think it would be valuable for you, for us because you've already gone through a seed round, right? But so for the company side, CEOs that are listening to this podcast, um, I, I think they would probably want to know what you've done and kind of they want to glean from some of your experience, um, you know, how to get investors. And then, and then you have the investors that probably want to hear what you've told other investors and what, what they would want to hear as well. So can you go through the process of getting an investment for your company and how you've kind of gotten your initial investors and what was so attractive to them? Sure. Well, I would say the, the bit of advice there to get an investor, it's a numbers game. And the more people you talk to, the better. It's, it's difficult to ascertain fit until you talk to somebody. And so I never turn down a meeting. I never turn down a conference unless, you know, unless it's extremely expensive. Um, just for the chance that I talk to the right person. And so I've probably talked to thousands of people for investment over the past four years. I'm not lying. Probably thousands, at least thousands of people. At least. I mean, it's wow. my, it was my main job. And so the majority of them say no. And which, what I've learned along the way is every, basically every investor is looking for a reason to say no. And so for that reason, every investor that says no, I try to get as much feedback. Like, why did you say no? And I tweak. And I constantly change how I pitch and how I do things. And if there's a data gap, I'm like, all right, they need that data. I'm going to go out and get it. And so it's a, it's, an, it's a constant evolution to address the needs of the investors uh, of today. And I think what's attracted us to those investors is one, we're responsive. So you said no. We've had investors who said no. And then a year and a half later, they're like, yep, I'm in now. So for that matter, no, no means no right now, but it doesn't mean no forever. And so you listen to the feedback for the no, yeah. you come back to them after you filled their, after, if you can fill their- so you take really good notes, take really yeah, good notes, absolutely. you yeah. go back to it and you go, when you fill their criteria or any criterion that they have regarding yep. investment, then you come back to them and you go, hey, you know that thing you had a problem with? Well, we've resolved it. And absolutely. And how yeah. often, do, how, how often do they remember having a conversation with you normally? Well, I don't know. I, it would be, Hey, so-and-so it's been about a year. Hope all is well. Uh, I know one of your concerns uh, about our investment was this, just to let you know, we were able to kind of address that. Here's the data to show it. Let me know if you want to get on a call to discuss, discuss this and see if we can maybe drum up some additional interest from you. And simple as that. And yeah. It works sometimes. It does work. You just can't, you have to take no for an answer because a lot of people are going to say no, but you cannot think that no means no. No, it means no now, but in a year it could mean yes. Things change. So this comes down to like sales and branding, right? So, or sales and marketing. So, you know, initially you kind of said, I I haven't sold a medical device, but the thing is, this is the most complex sale that you could possibly do, right? Um, is, is getting an investor. Um, so are you, when, when you get an investor that's just, just like a no, do you decipher how much of a no it is? And if it's a, a strict, like a strong no, do you just like move on from that person or do you continue reaching out later on? 
I'd say nine times out of 10, I continue reaching out. It depends. Most of the no's are like, hey, I like it. It makes total sense to me, but I'm, I'm just passing now for ABC123. That's friendly mm-hmm. enough to say, I get it. Okay. Um, but if you, if you do a double click on that, you, I put them into two buckets, angel investors. And, and then the other bucket is VCs or funds. Angel investors are easier. I won't call easier. it. I'm sorry. Uh, are they easier? Would you say? They are in a certain sense because if they like an investment, they don't require as much due diligence, but when, for instance, COVID came around, angel investors dried up. They're like, oh my God, I have money in the market here. I have money here. I have to hold on to cash. Mm-hmm. But funds are like, I ha- I, if they raise the fund, I still got to deploy capital to make money. They make a management fee off the, off the money they deploy. So, you know, we kind of pivoted towards the funds at that point, which they're less, um, you know, less sensitive to COVID because they still need to deploy their capital. So those are the kind of things I learned along the way is understanding, you know, what's the motivation, what's their criteria for success and go from there. Now, what's interesting is now as COVID is kind of easing up and we've kind of demonstrated that we are going to provide value in the post COVID operating room environment, the angels are like, all right, uh, I'm in, let's do this. And, and so for this, this particular event, I think, uh, obviously you have a wide range, uh, whether it's angels or funds there that, um, you know, we'll catch somebody. And, and so come back to your question. It's, uh, I'll, I'll just say, unless someone says this is ridiculously stupid, don't contact me again, which we never have. I, I pretty much always follow up eventually with, with yeah. someone in the past who said no. Yeah. I, I always feel like getting an investor is akin to, a model going to modeling agencies and the modeling agencies telling them why they don't fit a particular particular role and exactly why they're, they're too ugly to fit that role. That's why I think it's akin to, well, it's, 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 just, it's just hard. It's just hard. Right. Well, in orthopedics as well, we've already had an acquisition nibble early on. And it was with a company that we met very, very early on. And they're like, hey, you know, we like it, but not interested right now. And then a year and a half later, we talked to them, we gave them an update, we hung up the phone. And then two minutes later, the BD person calls me back and says, all right, how much you want for it? And I gave him a value. I was like, Ugh, that's a bit high for us. But point is, is, you know, even in those cases, they said no. But then a year and a half later, they're like, yeah, let's, let's do this. Obviously, our asking price is too high for them. But the point is, it's, Things change. Everything's dynamic, and um, as as a company, you're improving and de-risking. Hopefully, as as you're moving on and and, and doing things, that you become more attractive. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, whether it's an investor or an acquisition person. Yeah, definitely. Um, what, what are your thoughts on you know? Because your your approach right now, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's more it's a sales approach, right? Um, what are your thoughts on marketing and branding approach to getting investors? Like putting yourself out there on, for instance, Twitter or something, or putting yourself out there on like YouTube and growing a big YouTube channel to attract investors, to get inbound um, investors to come. What are, your, what are your thoughts on something like that? Sure. So I'll just say that having experience here in the medical device space, regulatory wise, we have to be, and we're a prescription only drug or uh, device. Yeah. We have to be extremely careful of what we throw out there in the market. Of course, of course. Claims, we, we can't, like if we're, I'll give you an example. If we're at a conference and a, and a surgeon comes up, oh, I'll buy 10 of your, nope, I can't do that. Um, there's a lot of things that our hands are tied in this space because of not just FD, FDA, but the FCC. Of course, of course. On how we, and, and probably just from your experience, if you watch TV, you probably see, maybe a handful of uh, pharma companies who like a Tesla or Humira, stuff like that, that can, that have the money, brand power, et cetera, to, to, to do that, some, that sort of advertising. Our type of medical device, we don't, it's, it's, we are, we, our hands are tied with regards to what we can say and what we can do. So, so let me ask you this. So let's say you, 
let, let me give you a scenario. Let's say you start a personal brand, right? And you, you don't ever talk about your medical device company. You, do, you, you let your profile do all of the selling for you, right? So that's, that would be regulated. Would you just posting content like, hey, you know, I'm here with my family or whatever the case may be, or I'm here at the beach. Is that, on, would that be under the scrutiny of regulatory um, government agencies? No, I will say this. We do have a YouTube page yeah. uh, for devices. I, I think I may have sent along the links to, we, we do have like very nice, I'll just say very expensive animations we put together that shows the features and benefits of our devices. We can show those things and we make it very clear. We put a lot of the qualifying statements, not FDA cleared for our spine device, all, yeah. and everything that we need to do for those sort of things. But, it, you know, beyond that, do we have a company Twitter page? we do we don't use it we're very careful with it um it's just in medical device space particularly orthopedics yeah very it's rare that you are going to to make a mark in the in the market using those sort of things Mm -hmm. it's it's relationship based of course Uh, course. yeah that's why a lot of medical device distributors in orthopedics do well because they have relationships with the surgeons. The sur- because this, these, these reps are in the procedure mm-hmm. with the surgeon, the surgeon gains a lot of trust with the rep. Sure. And that's the best approach is either you have your own relationships and they trust you or through a distributor that already has it. Of course. Throwing an ad out there in LinkedIn. You might, if you have a study, if we've, we've done studies and that we've we posted on, on say LinkedIn, but you're not expected much movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly from surgeons because they don't watch those things. They're, they're, the end user is is so busy that it really your access to them won't come through those things. Let me give you an example. Like let's say like a podcast, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot. There's a good amount of surgeons that listen to podcasts on on their way to work, or you know, mm-hmm. what if you developed a really popular podcast and it was specifically for surgeons, and you got them to listen to that podcast? And, um, and then I guess in between some of the podcasts, you could say something about the company, but you would very rarely talk about the company. You would just build a reputation that way. And the surgeons would do their own searching. They would figure it out on their own because they like the podcast so much. Do you see, um, do you see surgeons, you know, listening to a podcast? Because there's plenty of surgeons that listen to podcasts, plenty of physicians that listen to podcasts. Um, Sure. Now I'd say, do surgeons? I mean, they have some unbelievably crazy hours. Oh yeah, so, of course, of course. Um, like they, on their way to work. So the the thing about podcasts, though, here's let me let me just preface this really quick. The thing about podcasts is that it's more you you use podcasts and you integrate it into your life as opposed to it being a disruption in your life. So, like for instance, if if somebody's working out, they can listen to their uh, on their way to work. They can listen to a podcast. Um, you know. You know things like that. So it's it's more of an integration as opposed to like a disruption. No, I get it. It's not like the radio where there's a set time someone's speaking on the radio from five yeah. a.m. to ten a.m. Exactly. Podcast. Listen as listen as you want to. I get it. Now I will say there is uh, a couple podcasts out there um, that come sparingly in the orthopedic space. Um, I would be curious to see how much success they have. Uh, I'm definitely not against the idea of a podcast. I'm just thinking how I know. You need to see the the, the, the data. You need to see the data. That's what you need. I, I would. I yeah. would. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, especially coming from like a corporate culture, you need to, you have to have that data, right? Hey, I, it, it never escapes me, the corporate culture in a sense, even though I'm at a startup. Yes, I need to see the data. <laughs> yeah, you need both. You need both. It just, um, you know, what 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 pieces of culture do you imbue into your current state? You know, like, do you need corporate culture right now? No, not right now. It would actually hurt you right now, right? Um, yeah, but you know, look, you think about it. Podcasts is it's probably very inexpensive to set up, but it's time consuming. Oh, really? Like, time consuming. <laughs> it to get the interviews, to get to spread the word, um, to do all of that. It's really, really time consuming. Um, and then you're obviously paying your guests in a certain extent, not everyone, obviously, but no. if, but there is a, a cost to it. So, you know, right now my, my focus obviously is raising money. 
um, obviously getting our beta launch here for our first device going and, and making sure the development of our second device for the spine market is successful. Those are the things that, to me right now are the most the biggest value drivers. Definitely not against a podcast in any way, shape or form. I would just be, I would just need to see the real data then that, that there could be yeah, like, a real benefit. Yep. yeah, it makes yep. sense. It makes sense. Yeah. You, I mean, you, you have to. Um, and, but then also, you know, one thing I found is that in a lot of industries, there's always a first mover and the first mover tends to, to take all of the gold. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, so there, there is an aspect of, yeah, you need the data, but there's also an aspect of sometimes, sometimes you shouldn't wait for the data because you can create the data and then everybody follows along, you know, but you, but also being a pioneer is, is pretty difficult. So, you know, yeah, I like to think I'm a pioneer in the smart orthopedic digital tool space, not the podcasts. Space. You're definitely a pioneer. You're definitely a pioneer for sure. Um, there's no doubt about that. I mean, but but also there's not there's not a lot of is there a lot of competition right now that you guys have? No, I, I mean I think, I'm thinking of two podcasts right now in the orthopedic space, and they don't happen all the time. I, I'd be and I know and I know the two people who run it. I'd be curious to see if it's bears any fruit. But I'm thinking in terms of like your device too. Is there a lot of competition? Oh no, we're, we we have 20 issued patents to date. There's we're the only. Only single-use depth gauge, uh, electronic depth gauge out there in the market. There's That's no one else awesome. who has it. And no one, if anyone f- figures it out and gets around our IP, I'd be impressed. But there's a lot of defensible IP we put in there for it. That's awesome. That's awesome. But have you ever, so if, if somebody does come around and they go, wow, that's a, that's, there's a huge market in that space. Um, and then let's say they start developing the device. Once they become big enough, obviously you, you would have to do some type of litigation, right? To, to combat what they're, cause you have a patent on it. So I'm always curious as to, you know, in the medical space, you know, how people protect themselves long-term, you know? Um, There's a lot of ways to do it for us. uh, Patents obviously is, is a very big way to do it, but also if there's a time, money and effort aspect. So if, we launch and let's say Jane J says, Hey, I, th- I like this idea and I found a way around your IP. Let's just throw it out there for them to develop the device through all the, the regulatory stuff. It's going to take two years right there of, of time and money. And so we have a 510 K clearance from the FDA that belongs to us. No one else can use it. So they have to go through an FDA process as well. So, so what that means is they're going to sit there and be like, we have a way around it. We think we have a way around it, but it, it, do we want to spend two years of time, money, and effort on this and having someone like ourselves be two years ahead of them in the market to try to beat them? They're probably like, it's nah, not it's probably not worth the juice is not worth the squeeze we like it enough let's just buy them out mm. from there i love it so that that there's a lot of ways to protect ourselves beyond this this isn't like a drug where it's a it's a chemical medical devices are tangible pieces of equipment that you hold yeah. in your hand yeah it's yeah. not while the development timeline for clearance is shorter for a device compared to drug, the actual engineering around it is much harder to figure out than, than it is. Uh, uh, it's much harder to figure out in device space than it is for a drug. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. I feel like it's very convoluted with like the, the pharmaceutical space. Like you have to get the right experts and like, obviously you have to get the right experts in, 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 in this space too, but it's just like, who's gonna, you know, like it's, you can obviously see what the device can do. Right. But it's just so difficult to see like what the pharmaceutical drug could do, you know, you, like bio. It's yeah. For pharmaceuticals it's actually quite easy to figure that all out. You know, you can buy whatever, whatever, if it's an injectable or a pill and you can spend 
very little money figuring out what's the API, the active pharmaceutical agreement ingredient, and figure out how it works. That's that's probably an easy, very easy task. The the fact is, is they're well protected. Whoever has the IP on that and the patents and 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 all the other aspects with the FDA, they're protected from it. You know, whoever developed the drug or biologic has spent billions of dollars on this, five to eight years to do so. Um, they should be well protected. Devices are could be similar, but there's it, much. It's you're, you're using engineering you can, standards as opposed to chemicals. Well, chemical, chemical engineering. Well, yeah. Um, great, man. Well, all right. So if somebody wants to get a hold of you based on this interview, how would they do so? And um, mm -hmm. yeah, tell 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 everyone how they can get a hold of you. Well. They can email me at cwilson at edgesurgical.com. So C-W-I-L-S-O-N at E-D-G-E-S-U-R-G-I-C-A-L.com. Um, do, do you typically give out phone numbers here? I, uh, some I, have. I, I, don't, I, I don't. Hold on a second. I don't recommend it. <laughs> Right. We, we, get like, we get like one to 2,000 listens per podcast, and eventually that will go up to like 50,000 listens. And, uh, and so you know, it's going to be like years of people having your phone number and potentially wanting to reach out, you know, if this gets big. So. <laughs> well, I refrain. You have, I did just uh, say my email. You can reach out. I'll just say it's, it's a very exciting time for us in that, um, you know, COVID proved that we're, we're driving a lot more value than we thought. We have this very exciting beta launch ahead of us and our next gen device for spine has been turning a lot ahead, particularly with Medtronic. And you know what? The, the money we're raising now is the last money we're raising. So no anticipated additional dilution for investors. It's so we're ready to bring it on and things have been going uh, well. We've raised money during COVID, which is very positive. As I mentioned, we have two term sheets on the table as we speak. So it's just trucking forward. And hopefully um, this event uh, with you, Frank is also bear, bears a lot of fruit. Yeah. Um, what a, what are you looking to raise right now, altogether? Four million dollars. Uh, Four million dollars. Okay, great. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, hey, I look forward to hey, look forward you to soon and seeing you at the event. Seeing at the event. I'm great, Frank. I'm getting out. Back here. So. Back here. So.